First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start with the wildfires burning in B.C. More than 300 fires burning right now, evacuation alerts in some threatened communities. Do we have enough resources on the ground to fight these fires? And should British Columbia declare a state of emergency? Let's discuss now with my guest, Solicitor General Mike Farnworth. He is B.C.'s Minister of Public Safety, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Minister, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Good morning. Good morning to you. Minister, what is the status of the fire threat right now, and do we have enough resources to deal with it? Uh, Right now, there's 305 fires burning um, uh, in British Columbia. Uh, In terms of resources, there are over 2,500 BC Wildfire Service uh, personnel fighting fires. There's an additional 800 contractors assisting with that, many of them contract firefighters. There's 100 resources uh, out of province, Um, In terms of our ability to deploy police resources, that is in place. Uh, We have agreements, requests for assistance with the federal government, uh, supplying uh, equipment and personnel. That is in place. Um, In terms of uh, bringing resources from out of province, that's coordinated through Winnipeg, through the Interagency Fire Centre. They're doing their job. We have significant resources on the ground, and declaring a provincial state of emergency will not add uh, additional resources. Well, All the resources I, that we need to have to fight, we are able to access them uh, um, at the present time. I know in past years that we brought in resources from out, actually out of the country to fight the fires, notably from Australia. Is that being considered right now? And are, are there any problems with COVID travel restrictions in getting resources into the province? Obviously, when we bring uh, resources from out of country, uh, there are COVID protocols. Uh, but I can tell you that we already have firefighters from Mexico, uh, and there are uh, an additional 100 uh, firefighters uh, from Mexico that will be arriving and will be ready to go on the fires on the 24th of, uh, of this month. Okay, Minister, you mentioned the state of emergency, and as you know, there are growing pressure and calls on government uh, to declare a state of emergency because of the wildfires, just like your government did during the pandemic, just like your government has done in the past with previous wildfire seasons and this one looks like it could be even worse so there's a lot of questions about why you haven't taken that step let me play this clip for you this is kevin boone from the bc cattlemen's association he was on the show yesterday and here he is calling calling out uh, the province to do more we also need to and and this is imperative for rebuild and for restructuring we need a state of emergency uh declared uh here in the province uh so that we can um access some of this recovery funds and stuff in the future and we need to and i know this isn't going to sit well with the tourist industry and stuff we need that backcountry shut down okay what do you say to him minister uh first off i'd say two things uh in terms of recovery and, and disaster financial assistance again that does not require a provincial state of emergency that is already in place uh, in terms of fires and the floods, uh, what we've seen, um, that's been in place. The uh, uh, 
Disaster Financial Assistance Program has been in place, uh, implemented since April of this year. So none of the uh, the uh, state of emergency does not impact the ability to uh, to get uh, disaster assistance, <clears throat> or in terms of rebuilding uh, uh, in, in, into the future, either in the short, medium, or long term. Okay. Uh, in terms of backcountry closure. Uh, Backcountry closures, again, um, are already in place in many areas when they're around the fire area. So, for example, in Lytton, uh, in Lillooet, uh, there are backcountry closures that are already in place. Uh, and so, and that will be continued because there are local states of emergency. And so, uh, we, uh, fire service makes assessments in those areas. And if we need to close backcountry in those areas, we do. And in many cases, they have been. Okay, there are a growing number of local municipalities and fire-threatened regions of the province, notably the Caribou, calling on you to invoke and declare this state of emergency. we got the Thompson Regional Nicola District has voted to call for an emergency declaration, the Caribou Regional District, a lot of smaller municipalities in the, in the threatened area. What do you say to them? I'm just wondering what would be the downside. Like, why would you not bring in a state of emergency? And I'm looking back to what you had to say in 2018 when you declared a state of emergency because of wildfires. And you said, quote, taking this step will further ensure we can protect the public property and infrastructure and assist with firefighting efforts. So if it was the right thing to do then, why is it not the right thing to do right now? The decision to put in place a provincial state of emergency is based on the advice I receive from the experts in BC Wildfire Service. They're the people on the ground. They're the people with the expertise. They're the ones who advise uh, government, uh, myself as minister, when is the appropriate time to bring in a provincial state of emergency. That's how the decision is made. Uh, and these are the same individuals who have been ad- advising me this year, advised me then, and advised uh, previous governments as well. Um, and I understand, right. uh, um, you know, a concern in local government. Uh, that's why we've got local states of emergency. That's why we want to assure everyone that every available resource that we, are, uh, that we need to access, we are able to access, and we are able to do that right now. A okay. uh, provincial state of emergency put in place right now would, uh, would, would essentially – uh, allow me to go in and to, to commandeer something. It would allow me to go into, um, let's say, a forest company and say, oh, you've got helicopters. We're taking the helicopters to put to firefighting. Well, right. the reality is, is those companies right now are, are letting us, uh, you know, are, if we need helicopters, we've got them. There's more than 175 in the air um, right now in this province fighting fires. So the... Um, it's it's on the advice of the experts uh, whose job it is, and uh, that's that's the expert advice okay. that I rely on. Okay, but of course, under the Act, it's up to you to declare the state of emergency. It's right there in in, in the law that this is your call, not the call of the uh, of the bureaucracy. But let me play this for you. This is the your liberal critic at uh, Liberal MLA Peter Millibar also making the point that uh, an emergency declaration would at the at the very least assure the public that everything is being done. But here's what he had to say on the show yesterday, and then we'll get your thoughts. Peter Millibar. Does anyone uh, listening honestly think that uh, the experts would refuse extra resources and expedited access uh, to resources? Uh, This is a political decision, uh, plain and simple. Uh, The Premier could override and say, we're calling this, and and extra resources would be coming. Um, Every meeting that we're hearing ranchers and other people go into, they're hearing uh, from people on the front lines that resources are stretched. It's a game of checkers moving around resources. Okay, Minister, what do you say to him? Um, first off, I heard him yesterday, and the uh, the resources that we need, we are able to access, 
All of that is in place. As I said, a state of emergency will not free up an additional uh, resource. Um, what we need is, is, is we are able to access. But more importantly, what he also said yesterday was also incorrect, because I heard him say that uh, state of emergency would do away with red tape and being able to access uh, private property. Again, uh, that's wrong. Uh, in the sense that the Wildfire Act uh, already allows uh, fire crews to access private property, to access anywhere they need to, to fight uh, a fire. Um, Every available tool that is needed to fight fires is there right now um, to to fight fires in this province. Uh, A provincial state of emergency will not put in place additional resources that are not already there. Minister, there's been some suggestion that maybe the government is hesitant to declare this state of emergency because of backroom pressure from the tourism sector, that it would send a bad message to tourism and they want people traveling and and going on vacation in the interior. Can you comment on that? Is that correct? That is simply not correct. That is absolutely not true. Decisions are made on the basis of protecting life and protecting property, and they're made on the the advice uh, of the, the experts in the BC Wildfire Service, whose job it is, is to fight fires, protect communities, protect infrastructure, and that's how these decisions are made, and that's how these decisions are going to be made. Okay, Minister, last question for you. I spoke earlier to Jeff Kelly. He's the owner of a company in northern B.C. called Safeguard. You may be familiar with them. They're a fire suppression company, a wildfire prevention and response company. Uh, They've been deployed by the B.C. Wildfire Service in the past, and they say they're ready to go again, but they're waiting to be deployed. Here's what he had to say to me, and I'll get your thoughts on it here. Jeff Kelly from Safeguard. The wheels of change and innovation in our province turn ever so slowly, and this is a new system. So um, it uh, surprise is, is not the word I would use. Um, no. I know that we can make a difference, and it's heartbreaking to see some of the towns in our province threatened when we can do make a difference here. Okay, this is a company minister that deploys high-pressure water cannons around threatened communities. He says they've got all this equipment ready to roll right now. Why would the province not call on this guy and say, okay, get out there and do your job? The individual is, is, is able to be in touch, and I'm more than happy if we get the contact to put them in touch with the, the BC Fire Service. They receive lots of proposals from, uh, from people with uh, all kinds of protection systems. They're evaluated to ensure they're effective, and quite often they're used. Uh, and so uh, uh, that's what I would say uh, uh, at this point. Uh, send me the information, and I'll get it to the right, to, to the right place. Uh, but, uh, uh, the, you know, BC Wildfire Service assesses and makes decisions on efficacy uh, and safety and, uh, and, and makes sure that it's the right equipment for the right job. Minister, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Okay, thank you. Mike Farnworth there, BC Solicitor General, the Minister of Public Safety. Yeah, let's check in with Mike Morris now. He's the public safety critic for the Liberal Party's Liberal MLA, Prince George McKenzie. Mike, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. How are you doing? I'm, I'm great. Thanks for doing this. What do you think about the government's uh, continuing refusal here to declare this state of emergency? Very puzzling. You know, it's, uh, um, they are tasked with keeping the public safe uh, and using every tool in the, in the toolbox, and they've used that phrase before for other things, uh, to, to do so. And here we have communities, we have ranchers, we have uh, members of the public in desperate situations trying to deal with the wildfires that have caused evacuations, that have killed livestock, that have uh, wiped out entire communities, and still they sit by on their hands doing absolutely nothing. 
And now we have the BC Wildfire Service uh, admitting that they're out of resources, they're stretched to the limit, they're triaging fires, determining who they're, you know, which property they're going to save versus others. Uh, if this isn't an emergency, I don't know what the heck is an emergency under the uh, under this current government's eyes. Okay, well, they're, they're certainly not doing absolutely nothing. I mean, they've got hundreds of resources on the ground, hi- hundreds of firefighters bravely fighting these fires, and the minister says that a state of emergency wouldn't change that. Like, he's saying that the state of emergency right now would just be some sort of a technical decision government would make, but it would not leverage the resources that they need and that are deployed right now to fight these fires. So he's not, he says it's not necessary. Well, right. I, I think he might be a little bit misinformed there. Uh, you know, by declaring a state of emergency, it would give the fire bosses the ability to go out and bring resources in without having to go through the chain of command and get a minister's or a deputy minister's uh, approval. You know, I, I sit here and I, I look at that company called Safeguard out of uh, Fort St. John, who have trailers full of high-tech firefighting equipment, hoses and pumps, and, and 110 trained personnel ready to go at a second's notice. They've made the offer to the province, and there they sit. And, the, the, you know, the, the fire boss could go and say, listen, you guys come on down here and set up and save Canham Lake for us. And, and uh, you know, they've got that ability to do that. But for some reason, they're relying on, uh, on the current level of, of BC Wildfire Service personnel um, all members of BCGEU, maybe that might have a part to play in it. I've got no idea, but uh, th- this is serious, and Ooh. they should be pulling. Wait, 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 whoa, 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 whoa! Hang on a sec. You're saying that there, there's some sort of union politics involved here? Well, I'm, I'm not. I'm just saying that uh, all the, the firefighters that are out there on the line, the auxiliaries, they're all members of the BCGEU. But uh, um, why haven't they brought in contract workers? Uh, you know, well, they, got, they have brought in some contracted workers, have they not? Well, none that I'm aware of. You know, they bring well, firefighters in from other provinces and whatnot. But uh, when we have a company like Safeguard sitting on the sidelines here, uh, ready to go to work and save our communities, um, I have to ask that question. What's uh, uh, what's preventing that from happening? Okay, what would a state of emergency do? Like you mentioned that some of the fire officials, it would allow them to ease more easily access resources. He says he says all the resources that they need right now and are required are being fully leveraged right now, so they don't need it. Why do you yeah. disagree with that? Like, what would a state of emergency actually do? Well, it, it eliminates the, uh, the bureaucratic process of, of approval. So if we have a fire boss in Canham Lake, for an example, who needs resources uh, in Canham Lake, he can go out and find those resources either locally or wherever he needs them in the province to go and do that without having to go through the chain of command. That's, that's one of the technicalities that, uh, um, that's involved here. So, you know, otherwise, why do we have a state of emergency? Uh, you know, we've got the Emergency Program Act. We have a number of, uh, of uh, tools that are available for everybody. We have emergency management BC. We have BC Wildfire Service that you know have 2,700 uh, workers out there on the lines right now, but we we can get access to hundreds uh, of other uh, resources in the province here and all kinds of equipment uh, that that are okay. sitting idle right now. All right, welcome back to the show. Time now for an incredible story about a BC driver who was pulled over by police, asked to produce a breath sample in a roadside breathalyzer. What happened next has triggered what could be a groundbreaking legal case. And let's discuss now with my guest, Jamie Vanderleek. Jamie is a palliative care nurse. She lives on Vancouver Island, and I'm very pleased she could join me on the show today. Jamie, thanks a lot for coming on. Hi. Thanks for having me. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for doing this. Jamie, 
Uh, let's talk about what happened when you were uh, you were pulled over. I understand you were on. Were you on vacation in, in, near Penticton? Is that when this happened? That's correct. It was my first yeah. holiday since this whole pandemic. I've been a frontline nurse the entire time, working with people, and uh, it's the first time my, my family and I have had a chance to go on holidays. And um, leaving the lake, we were we were pulled over and asked to provide. A, or I was asked to provide a breath sample, which I said, "Oh yeah, I have no no problem doing because I haven't been drinking." Um, I. So the officer said, oh, so you should be able to provide a sample? I said, yeah. I said, I, I do warn you, though. I do have Bell's palsy. I said, I have facial paralysis, which is very visibly obvious. Um, I said, so I might have a hard time making the seal. Like, I can't blow up balloons. I can't drink from a straw properly. It's like I have, I have facial deformities happening. Yeah. Um, he continued to, to pressure me and um, took me to the car, tried several times to get a sample, started threatening me that I was going to be getting charged and having my vehicle impounded in my and my um, license taken away for 90 days. I pleaded with him at that case, please take me to emerge because I haven't been drinking. I just can't do it. He suggested I cover my face with my hand. He suggested I blow from the side. Um, he made several suggestions. I tried everything he suggested, and I could not make the sample. So I right. begged, please take me to emerge and do my blood alcohol. He refused, and he charged me on the spot. Okay, so you offered to say, look, I can't do this because I have this facial paralysis. You explained that to him, and you said, look, let's go to the local hospital instead. Draw a blood sample for me, and you can check my blood alcohol level that way, right? That's correct, and he yeah. refused. So, yeah. um, did he, did he, give, a, did he give an explanation? Yeah, yes. so immediately after I was released from him and being charged fully, one of the officers actually came up to the window and said, you know she has Bell's palsy, because at this point my partner was getting very upset, saying, hey, look, like you're, you're, he's he seen the major depression I went through. It was a really severe case of Bell's palsy. Um, he's seen what I've been going through my whole, in the past three years over this, so he was very upset. Um, one of the other officers even came to the window and said, you know she has Bell's palsy, and he didn't care. He just kept writing up the ticket. As soon as I got out of the car, another officer came to me and said, go straight to Emerge and get your blood alcohol taken. So I did. I went straight to Emerge myself and, wow. um, and went into Emerge and explained my story to Emerge. The Emerge, of course, was very busy. There was some people with bleeding and traumatic, act. I don't know, there was, it was a busy um, Emerge. So I sat there and waited, and then I went up after some time and said, hey, look, this is time sensitive. They're going to throw it out if I don't get it done right away. Um, can you please take it? And at that time, the attending doctor had said, um, no, they're just going to throw it out anyways. You need to go back to the detachment. You need to request to talk to the watch commander and tell them they need to bring you in to get your blood alcohol taken. Because if, you if you're not brought in by a, an officer, they're going to throw it out in court. So I did. I went back to the detachment and I demanded to talk to the watch commander on, on duty. I asked for everything to be timestamped because I knew they were going to use it against me. And I was very scared at this point because... I've never been in trouble in my life, ever, for anything. My last speeding ticket was probably 20 years ago. Um, and uh, the watch commander at that point told me, he was very sympathetic. It was a different officer. He was very sympathetic to me, and he said, under the new laws, there was just nothing he could do for me, and that I had wow. to now go through the process of disputing it, which is a 21-day process. Wow. So it sounds like you tried to do everything you possibly could to have this blood sample drawn, obviously. And so what did what happened to you? They uh, they took they impounded your vehicle and took away your driver's license. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. How long are those prohibitions? The my vehicle's impounded for thirty days, and my license is taken away for ninety. What kind of impact will that have on your life? Huge. I can't. My job. I work in the community, and I go from house to house to palliative clients' homes, taking care of chronically ill people and people with chronic wounds in the community, I can't do that job. I can't drive and do my job. So now my, my clients are left without, you know, like my office is left short a nurse. Um, 
but more importantly, I don't want this being about me. It's not about me. What I have, what I have issue with is I have been reached by so many Canadians saying, hey, something similar has happened to me. I have a medical condition, and this happened to me too. And I went through the review process, and I couldn't get it overturned. This law needs to change. There needs to be something in this law that states, hey, if this person has a medical issue, they need to be taken to emerge for a blood sample, or there needs to be a secondary test that allows for people. There was, there was a, um, a case where a guy was a cancer patient, and he had only one lung, and he couldn't blow. Yeah. And they charged him. Um, asthmatic, COPDs, they're all being charged the same for not being able to produce. And we're not given the chance to say, hey, look, I have a medical condition. I'm not being difficult. The officer kept saying, you're just being difficult. You're just not trying. I'm like, I'm trying my best. We need to be given a chance to prove our innocence, to be right. just slammed with the law and say, nope, too bad. You're now getting charged with this because you couldn't do this. Well, I couldn't do this because of my medical condition. Right. And speaking to Jamie Vanderleek about her experience being unable to, to use that breathalyzer. Jamie, you mentioned you have Bell's palsy. Can, can you describe what that is? Like, how does that affect your, your ability to use, use that machine? Because it, it gives you like paralysis on your face. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. So my, my whole inside of my face is, um, at first it was severely paralyzed. I couldn't even blink my eye. I had to tape my eye shut for months. Um, and slowly some of my nerves came back. It, what you don't get back after about six months to a year is then permanent. So my, the paralysis that I'm left with, because I had a severe case, I, some people will fully recover. I did not. Um, unfortunately, I've been left with quite the deformity. Um, so I can't even, like when I tr- tried to explain to the officer, if I give a great big smile that shows my teeth, you only can see half my teeth. If I try to sh- like show my teeth, you can only see half the side because my other side doesn't lift. Um, I can't wow. form a seal on a balloon. I have kids, and they constantly say, Mom, just try to blow up our birthday balloons. Just try, and I just can't do it. Um, it so wow. my whole side from being paralyzed is just flaccid. So you can't make that seal. Right. You mentioned that th- this is super frustrating for you. You wanted to prove your innocence. You say you were, you were not drinking. Why did the police officer pull you over in the first place? Did he explain that? Um, he said that he, he was doing a roadside check. Later, I learned that, that I guess that was his job for the day was to be posted at the side of the lake watching for people leaving. Um, so he was just doing a standardized roadside check, came to the window and, and stated that, and uh, basically said that, hey, I'm going to be doing a breathalyzer on you, which, okay, let's go, I'll, no problem. Um, so, he, it was, so it was like a random check? It, it wasn't like you were, he didn't tell you, see, I saw you weaving on the road or something? No, no, it was a random check. Random, um, wow. Yeah, random check. He, um, later in the police report, I did learn that he had been waiting at the side of the road watching people leaving the lake um, and decided to target us. Wow, okay, Jamie, that's an amazing story. Where does this go from here now? How can you fight back on this? Uh, my only recourse is through the IRP process, or through the review process, which I've talked to many lawyers. Um, Kyla Lee has graciously offered to take my case pro bono. Um, because she feels it's such a huge injustice that's been done to me. Um, but all the lawyers I've talked to, they've stated, you know, these, IR- these IRPs are extremely hard to overturn, and they just don't overturn them. And prior to the Victoria case, there was a lady in Victoria with Bell's palsy similar um, that had fought it. There was, a- according to one lawyer, there was no cases that were being overturned. But since her case, now some very small percentage get overturned um, with the medical issues. I've since gone to my doctor. I have medical proof that I have this disability um, Right. And I will now carry this letter with me in hopes to, to prevent this from happening to me again. But like I said, I, my, my heart goes out. I'm a registered nurse. I got into my profession to care for people that um, can't care for themselves. And I feel because of this, I have a responsibility to speak out for all the other Canadians that are being put in this situation. That there needs to be a backup for people with medical conditions. 
that, you know what, we shouldn't just be getting charged at the side of the road and having our life completely upheavaled. Like, I'm out of work now. My vehicle's impounded. I've been completely humiliated. My children's holidays, we were two days into our 10-day holidays. My holidays were completely ruined, and we had to come home. Um, It's been complete devastation for our family. And I don't want to see one other Canadian that has a medical condition go through what I've gone through. Jamie, I want to thank you for sharing your story today, and I'm very grateful to you. We're going to continue to follow it and see how it goes. I I think you've certainly hired uh, one of the best lawyers around, Kyla Lee, and we're going to continue to follow the case. Thank you for coming on and sharing the story today with our listeners. All right, thank you. Let's check in with Kyla Lee now. She's a lawyer with Acumen Law, and uh, she's representing Jamie Vanderlee. Hi, Kyla. Hello, good morning. Okay, thanks. This incredible story that she's, your client has just shared here, what do you think about it? I mean, it makes me so upset because there is one simple change that the government could make to the programming of roadside breathalyzers that would entirely avoid this situation, that would alleviate Ms. Vanderleek's concerns, and that would prevent people from medical conditions from being in a position where they're being accused of refusing to blow when they aren't, and the government consistently refuses to make that change. And what change would that be? There is a button on the roadside breathalyzers that can be programmed where if the officer presses it while somebody is attempting to blow, it will automatically take a sample at that point in time rather than the device's sampling parameters being triggered, which require a certain amount of airflow volume and a certain rate of airflow before it'll capture the sample automatically. Okay, we heard Jamie describe how she said, look, I'm not drinking. I'm, I want, she tried to give the breast sample. She was unable to do it because of this disability she has. And she said, look, let's go to the emergency room right now and draw a blood sample and you can measure my blood alcohol that way. Is that allowed? Is that an option for a police officer? No, there's no right uh, to have a, a blood sample taken, and police don't have the right to take a blood sample from you unless they believe uh, that you're impaired by alcohol, not they just suspect that you have alcohol in your body or alternatively have made a random demand for you to provide a sample into a breathalyzer. Okay, so when she tried to do that, she actually went to the hospital herself to try and give blood. Was that kind of just a, a hopeless effort or... I have had clients in the past who've been able to persuade hospitals or labs to take their blood, but it is, by and large, the clients of mine who have tried that route get turned away at the hospital because the hospitals are too busy or they're cynical um, or they don't have the ability to draw the blood at that point in time. I've had people who did smaller hospitals, didn't have a blood tech on staff at the moment. Um, All of these things are roadblocks that prevent people from proving their innocence and demonstrating that they had no reason to fake medical condition. Okay, her driver's license has been suspended for 90 days. She's lost her job as a palliative care nurse, as you heard her describe. Her car has been impounded for 30 days. You have taken on her case. How can you fight back on this? What, what are your next steps here? Well, the next step is, is to put together a good body of evidence to prove that uh, there was no intentional uh, refusal to provide a sample and that the, the failure to be able to produce the required amount of error was as a result of a medical condition. So gathering medical evidence, witness statements, a good statement from Ms. Vanderleek, all of those things are necessary in order to, to prove the case because the burden is on her to prove her innocence. Right. So you appeal this, what, through the courts? Is that how this works now? It's actually done through a hearing with a Road Safety BC adjudicator. So it's not through the courts. It's only on the telephone, and you only get 30 minutes to make all of your submissions and make your case. 
Okay, that's going to be a fascinating case. Kyla, let's uh, quickly squeeze in a phone call here and see what people think. Kyra on the line in Burnaby. Hi. Oh, hi, Mike and Kyla. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to say I'm really pleased that you had Jamie on your show today. I actually read about her story in the paper a a few days ago, and I'm almost sickened by what she's going through. Uh, The fact that she can be so articulate, explain what she went through is really amazing and you can actually hear in her voice the stress and the pain and yeah. beyond having her ticket and whatnot overturned she deserves an apology and she deserves some kind of compensation for everything she's gone through she's she can't go to work yeah, um, no, I, I, I agree with you thank you for the call I, as I listened to her I was completely won over by her I, I mean I thought she was telling the absolute truth there and I think it was quite evident that she went to the hospital to try and give a blood sample. She did everything she could. She can prove her medical condition, that she has this Bell's palsy condition that causes the paralysis on her face. What kind of evidence? It sounds like, Kyla, would you say you've got a strong case here? I think that there is a good case here. And I, I, I commend her for wanting to share her story because a lot of yeah. people are terrified about the stigma of being accused of drinking and driving or accused of refusing to blow. And they're not willing to share their stories of injustice. And the only way that we're exposing the significant flaws and pitfalls in what's happening with roadside breath testing is for people to be brave like her, to take all the steps that they can and to, to speak publicly about what they're going through. Right. Is there any case law or precedent that you can rely on in this case? I mean, has this kind of stuff happened before? There are cases at the B.C. Supreme Court where um, people have argued reasonable excuses, but ultimately the the precedents in these cases more deal with the way that adjudicators reach their conclusions as opposed to the actual facts. So each case essentially has to be argued afresh. Okay, Kyla, we just got a minute here. How long will it take you to pursue this appeal on behalf of your client here, uh, Jamie, who has explained that you know she's lost her job, she can't work because they've taken away her license in her car. Hopefully, if everything works out at the hearing with the superintendent of motor vehicles, we'll get a decision within 21 days of the date that this incident occurred. That's the timeline set up in the Motor Vehicle Act. But adjudicators can take an extension of the time, and if she doesn't succeed in the hearing, then there's appeals that have to go to the Supreme Court. Okay, in the meantime, she's out of luck, I guess, with her work. Yes, there's right. no temporary pause on the driving prohibition while the matter's before the tribunal. Okay, fascinating case, to say the least, and we are going to follow it here on the show. Kyla, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. For- Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina, and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music, and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie, and Wrightsville, and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com.
having me. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk sky high gas prices now. Just taking a look at gasbuddy.com right now at Vancouver gas prices today, $1.66, $1.67 a liter. In many places, I filled up the family minivan the other day, 109 bucks, 109 smackers to fill up the van. This is about the highest I've paid for a fill-up. Why are gas prices so high? Well, the tax man has got his hand in there, multiple hands, actually. You take a look down at how many taxes you pay at the pump. Of course, you got the carbon tax. You got the provincial excise tax, the federal excise tax, uh, the GST which uh, is charged on top of your total purchase, including all the other taxes. So you pay tax on tax with your GST. Of course, in Vancouver, you got the TransLink tax. It really blows up the price of gas. Get, price of gas is very high right now. Okay, let's discuss it now. Got both sides of it for you. Chris Sims on the line, BC Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hi, Chris. Hi, thanks for having us. Also on the line is Peter McCartney, climate campaigner with the Wilderness Committee. And I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Peter. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks, guys, for both of you being here. Chris, let me go to you first. Gas taxes in B.C., too high? What's your thoughts? Well, absolutely too high. At uh, about $0.68 cents on average, when you include the second carbon tax here in B.C. Uh, in Vancouver, that is the highest by far in North America. It even beats out San Francisco by about $0.30 cents a litre. So it's it's quite eye-watering. Okay, the carbon tax, when you say a second carbon tax, what do you mean a second carbon tax? So that is a uh, standard that's tucked into government fuel regulations, and it's here in British Columbia. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and opposition leader Aaron O'Toole wanted to go across Canada as well. On average, because they have to add special stuff to the gas, it adds around 14 cents per litre. So that goes up and down, but the average is 14 cents per litre. So our first carbon tax is around 10 cents, and our second carbon tax due to this fuel regulation is around 14 cents. That's why. Okay. Okay. The carbon tax, of course, has been brought in to try and discourage uh, fossil fuel burning because we've got a planetary climate change emergency, which we can see very graphically in the province right now. We just had a we just had a village burned to the ground the other day. So, so Chris, isn't that isn't it important to pay to pay that carbon tax? Or you think the carbon tax is too high? Or what? It's that it's not working. Uh, so, number one, our emissions are going up here in British Columbia, not down. Even with the two highest carbon taxes in Canada, it's gone up around 11% over the past three or four years. And so it's not working in that way. And second, uh, because we are so small, even if we stopped everything tomorrow, it still wouldn't help emissions globally in a grand scale. If we truly want to tackle global climate change through these emissions, then we should okay. do something smart, like sell more natural gas for example, to a place like India, where they're still burning very dense, very dirty fuels, such as uh, animal dung and wood. If we want to do that, that would dramatically reduce global emissions, and it would help. Okay, let me get the other side of it now. Peter McCartney from the Wilderness Committee. Peter, your thoughts? I'm just, I have to be honest, I'm stunned that this conversation uh, opened the way it did. 777 British Columbians died suddenly during the heat wave, four times the usual amount. Nobody died from paying an extra 10 cents a liter on gasoline. Are you kidding me right now? Like, people, the carbon pollution from the burning of fossil fuels is killing people, and economists tell us that the best way to do that is to make the burning of fossil fuels more expensive because people can plan and shift on to cleaner choices. And so I, I, it's staggering to me. I cannot believe that people are still talking about 
like how you do look around in July of 2021 and think that we need less action on climate change, that we need more carbon pollution that is driving the fires, the droughts, the floods that are wreaking havoc in our communities. I, you, you'd have to be a monster to think that we need less climate action in 2021. Okay, so you, so Peter, you think the price of gas should be higher there? You think it's too low then, right? I do. I think the carbon tax is scheduled to go up to $170 a ton by 2030, and that is the only way that Canada is going to meet its targets on climate change. And the great thing about gas prices going up is that people can, it incentivizes people to produce other options. Most cars on the road will be electric long before we've decided to uh, mandate that by law because people have the option, because people are able to look at their finances and depend on the carbon tax going up and and switch to, to cleaner fuels. It works. It works really well. The only reason in B.C., that emissions went up over the past decade is because groups like the Canadian Taxpayer Federation convinced Premier Christy Clark to stall the increases in the carbon tax. And so it is working. It does work. We know it works. And it's the best solution we have right now to combat climate change. Okay. Chris Sims. That is not true. If you look back through the government's own data, the last I checked even on the BC government website, it's in five of the last seven years that emissions have gone up. So trying to tie that into whether or not we're increasing and jacking up the carbon taxes doesn't make sense. And frankly, calling folks monsters who want people to not be paying through the nose when they're filling up their family minivans in comparatively tiny British Columbia, when you're talking about global climate change, is bizarre. We just said, if you want to actually reduce global emissions so that we do fight climate change, including things like forest fires, and natural disasters, things like that, then let's actually do it. Let's reduce emissions elsewhere where we'll make a big impact. Because as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said himself, even if we stopped everything tomorrow, stopped, period, it wouldn't make a dent, globally speaking. So why are we punishing commuters and families who are trying to make ends meet in the Fraser Valley by filling up their minivans when that isn't the main problem here? Peter. The main problem is the burning of fossil fuels. It's the burning of fossil fuels here, and it's the burning of fossil fuels everywhere else. And every ton of carbon pollution that we don't put into the atmosphere is going to save lives. So why? Why? We have this policy. We've had this five-year debate, and the vast majority of Canadians support the carbon tax. It's probably the most popular tax in the history of taxes. So let's move on. Let's double down on climate action in other areas because this conversation is is over. It's it's not something that we need to continue. We need to get to work on all of the other things we can do to reduce climate change okay. because every carbon, every ton of carbon pollution matters. Chris. Actually, I don't think this is the most popular tax across Canada. Uh, premiers who were elected from Alberta to Atlantic Canada were largely elected because they promised to get rid of their provincial carbon taxes. So right now, this is a B.C. issue primarily and a federal issue with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Okay, Peter, what do you think of the argument that Chris made that even if British Columbia brought in the, you know, tripled the carbon tax or we shut down a lot of fossil fuel uh, combustion in the province, it re- it wouldn't make a difference on a, on a global scale. The, the, if you want to 
correct this problem. You need to get China, India, the United States, South America. This is where we need to stop the growth of, of emissions. Like, what do you think of that? Or do you think, like, B.C. should be leading by example? Or what do you say? I mean, we need to get China, India, the United States to reduce their emissions. The good news is those countries are actually on their way to meeting their carbon uh, climate target. Canada isn't. And so, you know, it, it matters wherever we're doing this carbon pollution. And the great thing is that we can, we can do this first. We can lead into the, um, the economy of the 21st century, or I guess the 2020s now. Um, we, are, we can actually show, it, show folks how it's done. And we can replace heat pumps in our house. We have already very clean electricity, for better or worse, here in British Columbia. And so we're able to make this transition and uh, and make it possible for other countries around the world okay. to do the same thing. Okay, Chris, real quick, and then we'll take a break and take some calls here. Your response. I'm curious what he means by for better or for worse, that we have clean electricity in B.C. Well, we flooded a bunch of river valleys, uh, you know, decades ago, and there was a lot of pretty terrible environmental and human rights impacts for that. So, but our so grid is clean. Those are, no longer, those are no longer polluting, and... Um, you know, that's, that's where we're at right now. I think this highlights um, a crux of an issue here, is where a lot of times uh, folks will say, oh, well, just switch. Switch to electric. Number one, tons of folks can't afford to do that. We don't have the infrastructure. They don't have the money for the electric cars. Not everybody lives in downtown Vancouver. And two, when it's pushed of where are you getting that electricity from, then that becomes a big issue as well. So folks need to live. We live here on Earth. We need to do so in the most environmentally responsible way possible. But we also can't bankrupt people. And frankly, at 68 cents per liter in Metro Vancouver, more than 50 bucks going into your family minivan is taxes right now. Lots of folks can't afford that. Joe, it's the great gas tax debate. Chris Sims, Peter McCartney are my guests. Let's uh, go to your phone calls. Omid on the line in Port Moody. Hi. Hi, Mike. I think Peter should get uh, get rid of his bike and get a car. Listen, I work in real estate. I have three gas burners to take my clients around. And what I'm trying to say, the prices are just ridiculous to fill up. The cars are 98% efficient on burning off fossil fuels. What's this guy bringing to the table by telling tell him to jump in the plane, go to India or go to China, and get where the source of the pollution coming from? People can't afford these high prices. When John Horgan said, I'm going to look and investigate, but you can't point towards the government. What a farce. I'm just okay. sick of it. Okay, thank, thank you for the call. Okay, Peter, he says he's in business. He has to drive for, to run his business. What do you say to him? If people can't afford gas prices, they can't afford climate change. Our, our food prices went up 3.5% last year, largely credited to climate change. And the carbon uh, we had, taxes. We had, we had berry producers lose half their crops this year. That drives your food prices up. If you're paying insurance for those homes, if you're a real estate agent trying to sell a home in, uh, you know, at the forest boundary and uh, on the North Shore or in the interior, how, how are people going to pay for insurance for homes? When, uh, when, you know, we're seeing these fires every year coming yeah. through. Um, the costs of climate change are already hitting our pocketbooks harder, but more mm. importantly, they're hitting people's lives. The, okay. the village of Lytton burned to the ground in a matter of 15 minutes uh, yeah. because of a heat wave that was 150 times more likely because of climate change. We need to do this as fast as possible. And, you know, 10 cents a liter on gasoline, it sucks. 
No one likes paying for gasoline. When I go out and rent a car and go camping, I don't like paying for that. But you know what? It's it's starting to fix the problem, and that's what we need to do. Chris? If we actually want to fix the problem, us getting hit with 24 cents per litre on carbon taxes in little old Vancouver is not going to actually hit the problem. You need to go after the big end of the mathematics here. Go after places like India that are asking to change. This is not something we'd be forcing on them. They are asking for things such as cleaner burning natural gas so that they can reduce their emissions and frankly free up women and children from collecting wood to burn every single day. So if he's truly worried about a beautiful place like Lytton, which is only about an hour from my house, burning down, I agree. But we need to actually do it in a way that works without punishing people for no reason here in B.C. Okay, let's go to Victor on the line in Surrey. Hi, Victor. Oh, hi there. Here's one thing that we can start doing that will help, is uh, we've got to plant a lot more trees. So trees are, are air scrubbers, and they also absorb water, and uh, some of these floods are a direct result of... Uh, too much concrete and asphalt, and uh, th- there's no trees to uh, to move the water out. So, okay. I mean, I'm talking about serious, serious. It should be a department of regeneration of the forest. Okay, you Peter. Know, do you, Peter, do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think planting trees is a fantastic solution to climate change, but it's not a substitute for eliminating our use of fossil fuels. Um, the scientists are very clear on this. Extreme weather is going to get worse until we stop using fossil fuels. So the sooner we can do it here, India, China, wherever, the faster we can get off of fossil fuels, the better off we're all going to be economically and just for our safety. Chris Sims. On the issue of groceries, I did want to point out that uh, a chunk of the grocery cost increase is obviously from the carbon tax. A lot of folks don't know this, but grain farmers and seed producers across prairies pay the carbon tax on their grain dryers, which is natural gas, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars per bill. And guess what? Everything uses grain in the food chain. So that's one of the reasons why our grocery costs have gone up. Squeeze another call in. Ron in New West. Hi, Ron. Yeah, hi. Um, You know, the thing is, the government goes after the uh, vehicle drivers because they're an easy target and we have no way to fight back. But uh, I agree with Chris, like, you have to target the large polluters. One of my pet peeves is that there are no taxes on all of the high-rises and new buildings going up to house our increased population. For example, in Coquitlam, there's a, I think it's a four-tower project going up that's going to house 8,000 people. That's a huge carbon footprint to build those four towers. And again, those 8,000 people, you think they're not going to drive cars? Maybe we need to really focus on our immigration and say, hey, we don't need to increase the population right now. Okay, Ron, thank you for the call. Guys, we are just about out of time. I'm going to give you 30 seconds each to, to sum up. Chris, what would you like to say here? you got 30 seconds. Go ahead. That you can fight global climate change and have a true and passionate dedication to the environment without carbon taxes here in B.C. They're not working anyway. Emissions keep going up and folks can't afford it. Let's focus on bigger issues in okay, order pe- to reduce it. Okay, Peter, you get the final word here. Go ahead. Yeah, the International Energy Agency, the, you know, people who've been putting out the studies that uh, Chris has always pointed to about gas demand going up have said no new fossil fuels if we want to maintain a safe climate. Um, the carbon tax is, it's not perfect, but it, we have it in place. It rebates money to people who need it, and uh, it's the best okay. solution we've got right now. Guys, thank very you for... British Columbians get a rebate, by the way. That's a federal Th- issue. Very thank- few BC get it.
Thank you to both of you for an excellent conversation. We got lots more calls we just couldn't get to, so we'll just have to have you back. As simple as that. Thank you very much. Chris Sims, Canadian Taxpayers, Peter McCartney from the Wilderness Committee. Thanks a lot for all your calls. You know that election fever has just taken hold here in Canada. Uh, Come on now. The election campaign's already begun, clearly. The election has not been officially called yet, but it sure seems like the campaign has begun. Every major party leader on the campaign trail here, including federal conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, he made a swing through B.C. this week. He was my guest on the show uh, this week as well. Okay, let's get the other side of it now. My guest is Carla Qualtrough, Canada's Federal Minister of Employment. She is the Liberal MP for Delta. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Minister, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Nice to speak with you. Okay, Minister, I know you're making an announcement today with some uh, funding for a clean energy fund. Can you tell me what's going on there? Absolutely. So this was a really exciting collaboration between the government of Canada, the government of BC and Shell Canada to create the Centre of Innovation and Clean Energy, which is a $105 million partnership between 35 of the feds, 35 of the province, 35 Shell um, to invest in green energy projects. Um, you know, as a way forward in reaching our GHG emission goals of net zero by 2050. Okay, is this new money coming from government on this, or? It was announced in Budget 2021, so it's that money. Okay, it it seems like we're on an election footing. I mean, is it fair to say that this, this appears to be what's coming in Canada, right? The election's on. Well, I don't have any inside scoop, but certainly in a minority (laughs) government, we have to be prepared at any time. Okay, uh, let me play some comments from a conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole. He was my guest here earlier on the show this week, and I uh, get your thoughts and reaction here. Now, here is Aaron O'Toole the other day. I asked him, he thinks the election is on. He's already campaigning. I asked him, do you plan to cut taxes if the conservatives were to form government? And here's what he had to say to me. We want to keep taxes low and and in some areas, maybe even small reductions to make sure that people, particularly seniors, they're being priced out the cost of living. That inflation's hitting people, especially who are on fixed incomes, Mike. So we are looking at some relief. Mr. Trudeau is looking at taxing people's home equity. Oh, okay. This is not the first time the Conservatives have said the Liberals want to tax the equity in your home. Minister, is that true? It is not true, and it could be further from the truth. We have no plans. We are not looking into any kind of capital gains tax on first residential, primary residences, sorry. Um, I don't know why they keep saying it, because we keep telling them it's not the case. Okay, okay. well, I think they keep saying it because they know there's an election well, coming. I know, I know that, why. but it's, it's pretty disingenuous, right? Because we keep correcting and saying we haven't asked government to look into it, where officials are not looking into it, it's not our intention. Yeah. I, it just We just got to stop talking this way because it's unfair to Canadians because it's misinformation. Okay, I asked him if he thinks the election is coming. He's already in campaign mode, and here's what Aaron O'Toole had to say to me. Trudeau's posturing for that. He's told his own uh, internal party people to be ready. But, Mike, this is my first tour as opposition leader. I was elected during COVID. I've been trying to hold Mr. Trudeau to account. We have countless cover-ups and scandals. The Liberals are suing the Speaker of the House because they refuse to release documents about the Winnipeg lab scandal. So this is a scandal plague unethical government that is now going to try and bribe people with their own money on the eve of an election they're forcing in the summer when the country's not even fully open. 
Okay, as a conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole, my guest is Federal Employment Minister Carla Qualtrough. Minister, what do you think about what he had to say there? I mean, get set for lots more of this. He's going to accuse the government of being a scandal-ridden uh, government as we get closer to an election campaign. But your thoughts? Well, just like uh, Mr. O'Toole, uh, our Prime Minister hasn't been able to get out and see Canadians either during the pandemic. And as soon as the public um, health measures were lifted, he's out there making good on promises we've been making for a year and a half. So I think we're all just excited to be having these meetings, these face-to-face, these announcements. I haven't been able to announce anything in Delta, for example, for a year. And of course now I'm going to take the opportunity to just reconnect with my community face-to-face. So um, I don't know what I don't know what part of that 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 statement you want me to dig in on, but perhaps you can give me some guidance, Mike, because there's so many pieces in that clip. Okay, well, let me play another one here for you and get your thoughts on this because we talked about an elect- election timing. I think everyone seems to be on the election footing in the country. Um, I asked O'Toole that he says he says we should not be going into an election in Canada right now as the country emerges from a pandemic. He thinks the House of Commons was working. Have a listen to this. Here's the federal conservative leader, and then I'll get your thoughts. He's been able to be propped up by the parties on the left that support him. We are the only ones that have been fighting for a plan to keep the cruise ship business here in BC to have a safe reopening plan. We we were exposing his his uh, uncomfortable links with the Chinese communist regime, including the vaccine partnership. We've been the only ones standing up for all Canadians, and I think we need to get the economy moving. Small businesses are in crisis, especially tourism, Mike, on the island. Yeah. Indigenous tour operators, they're really worried. I'd prefer to see a plan to help them, not an election. But I can't ever trust Mr. Trudeau to put the national interest ahead of his own self-interest. Okay, Federal Conservative Leader Aaron O'Toole. Minister, let me ask you about, he covered a lot of ground there, but let me ask you about your own, what's right in your wheelhouse here as the Federal Minister of Employment. And he talked about a comeback plan and an economic plan, especially coming out of the recession here in B.C. How do you respond to him? Well, first of all, I think the Conservatives have been focusing 100% on getting in the way of helping Canadians. And it really has frustrated me as the, the lead for many of our response measures and emergency um, benefits to Canadians that, that they just are taking political shots. And we're trying to help people and help businesses. And it, we're at cross purposes with the Conservatives regularly. They didn't vote in favor of any of the supports that we put in Budget 2021 for businesses or in families or seniors or individuals. And so it's kind of disingenuous for him to suggest that, that the House has been working well. We have been able to put many, many things through and work constructively with other parties. Um, but I don't think it's fair, having lived through this kind of on the ground, um, for him to say that, that we have, that, that, that this has been working or that yeah. it has been easy. Right, just got a minute left here, Minister. You heard him talk there about the BC cruise ship industry. That interview was recorded before the announcement yes. from the federal government yesterday that cruise ships will be allowed back into Canadian waters. The tourism sector here in BC, as you know well, has just taken a battering here yeah. uh, during the pandemic. What kind of hope can you give to that sector? Well, first of all, the, the, the industry itself has been asking us to um, give them a signal that when they need to get ready to open. And so that has done that. And we've received some very favorable responses from that sector. Of course, we're investing, I think, $300 million through Budget 21 directly to tourism operators. It's why we've got the hiring benefit uh, sorry, plan coming up. Um, absolutely, we know that there are some industries that are going to take longer to recover from this, and that's why we are targeting our Budget 2021 measures to those industries and tooling down on the more gen- more general um, everybody-type uh, benefits. Minister, thank you for your time today, and I look forward to having you on again. Thank you. My pleasure, Mike. Take care.